The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4, in our study of this epistle. James 4, reading verses 1 through 12, which are really closely connected with the end of chapter 3. End of chapter 3 is about uh, wisdom from above. And we move into chapter 4. Hear God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. If you watch the news at all, you know that there's a lot of conflict in our world. But you and I don't have to go to some war-torn country to experience the kind of everyday, ordinary conflict that James talks about in these verses at the beginning of chapter 4. No, fights and quarrels are unfortunately part of the experience of all of us, whether it's outright warfare, we might say, with raised voices and maybe even sometimes physical violence that takes place, or whether it's the ordinary kind of low-level conflict, destructive conflict that expresses itself in many different ways. This kind of destructive conflict is something that no person born into this fallen world can escape. It happens in our families. It happens in our 
churches. In fact, it's probably conflict within the church that James is primarily thinking of. We all becomes, become experts at conflict as we look out for ourselves and collide with people who are doing the same thing, looking out for number one. We even learn how to carry out our conflicts in subtle and more socially acceptable ways. We become experts at things like the derogatory attitude or the, the unkind remark or the impatient tone of voice or rolling our eyes or cold and sullen distancing or self-justifying rationalizations, the verbal attack with words, the excuse-making, the self-pity, and on and on the list of the methods of our warfare goes. But into this world of conflict comes the word of God. Into this swirling confusion of self-seeking comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with the invitation of the gospel. And to those who trust in him, Jesus gives the life-transforming Holy Spirit, the spirit of holiness and the spirit of peace, and he begins to turn his people into true peacemakers instead of being peace breakers. Let me ask you this question. When God looks at you and your relationships, when he looks at how you interact with your family, with the people you see every day, with your co workers or fellow students, what does he see? Does he see the wisdom that is earthly or from below, as we saw last week, or does he see the wisdom from above? We saw in verse 15 where, of chapter 3 where James characterizes these two kinds of wisdom. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And then he talks about the wisdom that is from above. It's first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Powerful words that lead into this description of conflict. And so we see in chapter 4, in the verses before us, we see two primary points. The first is the root of our sinful conflict is our sinful heart. The root of our sinful conflict is our sinful heart. And then the second main point we'll see is the cure of sinful conflict is humbly submitting to our God. The cure is humbly submitting to God. Let's look at those two areas. Well, the first we see is the root of sinful conflict in our sinful hearts. Verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What a powerful way to describe the root of it all. Here we are given... God's answer why we so easily end up in patterns of destructive conflict. The reason? Well, note what he does not say. He does not say it's because the other person is so hard-hearted. He does not say it's because you got up on the wrong side of the bed. 
or because you had a bad day at the office. It's not even because, he says, he doesn't say that your core emotional needs are just not being met fully. No, God's word tells us that destructive conflict springs ultimately from wrong desire. You want something and you aren't getting it. He calls it in verse 1, the passions, your passions that are at war within you. And then in verse 2, you desire, it's a different word, and do not have, so you murder. The word desire there can have a strong good meaning in the New Testament as well as a negative one. Here it's a negative one. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And probably James is speaking with hyperbole or metaphor. Probably wasn't really murder going on in the church. But he's, he's getting to the heart of it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Do not ask the Lord. And then he says, and then he even condemns the what they're asking for. He says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He's back to that word passions. It's the, the Greek word is the root of the word that we get our word hedonism or hedonistic. Desires for pleasure maybe primarily for self-centered desire. Now, to get to the root of it like this, that James is saying, does not mean that there aren't such things as trying circumstances. There are. Maybe you're exhausted. Maybe you didn't get a good night's sleep. Maybe you haven't gotten a good night's sleep for days or weeks. Maybe you just spent 45 minutes in a traffic jam on Oregon Pike that you didn't plan as part of your day. Maybe you even learned to react the way you react from your parents' example, and that was very formative in your life. But even if these kinds of things may be true, and certainly they are, we might look at them more biblically as occasions of temptation or areas of weaknesses in our lives. But they're not the real root of why quarreling and fighting in a way that dishonors God exists in all of our lives to some degree. No, the reason that we do not act according to the wisdom that is from above is because of self-centered, sinful desire. Verse 1 puts it very clearly. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And that can include, certainly, desire that is purely sinful and wrong, but also it can mean a desire and a longing for good things, but that is held too tightly and is not submitted to God, as we will see. At that moment of contention, we are wanting something more than we are willing to love and trust and submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are wanting something more, and that desire, to that extent that it's not submitted to God, has become sinful. And so we have conflict. And let me just make a distinction here. I am not saying that if you get to the heart of things and your heart is right, that you will not have conflict at all. There's always going to be conflict, but James is talking about destructive conflict that is sinful and wrong. There's always going to be conflict in churches, in families, 
And that is because people are going to disagree about things, but conflict can be resolved in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. So we're talking, and I believe James is talking here to the church of his day, about destructive, sinful conflict. Now, this root cause may sound simplistic, but it is not. It is the true scriptural diagnosis for the ultimate cause of our failure to resolve conflict in a Christ-honoring, Christ-like way. It is not simplistic, but it is simple. And yet at the same time, it cuts very deeply. It exposes the state of our hearts. But it's helpful for us to know this. It's like getting a diagnosis to a disease that is accurate. I got something in my eye when I was trimming a bush Thursday night And I was really worried about this. I didn't sleep very well that night because my eye hurt so much. And about 12 years ago, I had been trimming that same viburnum bush, and I got a little bit of that leaf brushing my eye that year. And that little fuzzy part of the leaf stayed in my eye for four months. I went to my primary provider. He didn't see anything. I went home. I went to my primary ophthalmologist. He didn't see anything wrong. I went home. All summer, my eye was sore. I said, something must be in my eye. And I went to another ophthalmologist that I had gone to before. And sure enough, there was a little piece of that fiber, that leaf, embedded in my eyeball. And my eyeball had formed a cyst. I was so glad that he gave me a good diagnosis. And he just numbed my eyeball and then took this red hot thing. It looked like a poker and just burned it out. I was so glad. That was it. So when that happened to me Thursday night, I said to Patty immediately, I'm going to that ophthalmologist tomorrow. I was up, ready to call as soon as the office opened. I wanted the good diagnosis. I went there and thought, you know, I waited an hour and everything to time out of my day. My eyeball was only scratched. If I would have just waited about 12 more hours, it would have gone away. I wouldn't have had to do the co-pays and all that stuff, but I wanted the right diagnosis. Patty said, John, we're cutting down that viburnum bush, so you don't have to do that anymore. (laughs) Maybe so. My point, though, is that this solution, this true diagnosis from Scripture, exposes our souls. It's like James tells us in chapter 1 that God's Word is like a mirror. It shows us as we really are. So when conflict arises, when destructive, sinful conflict that is no longer edifying, it's not two people disagreeing and reasonably calmly talking about differences, praying about differences. I loved what, uh, um, was it Morgan and Aisha that talked about how Mary Jo and Carrie, when the problem came up, they always handled it calmly and said, well, God has a purpose and God is at work in this. What an example of potential conflict handled in a God-honoring way. Yes, there are going to be things like that, but we need God's mirror, the Word of God, to be held up to our hearts. And conflict often shows us because we see bad fruit come out of our lives in conflict, and then that exposes the bad root that really is showing us where desires are ruling us that are wrong. The problem we have is that we fail to look honestly into the mirror of God's word with the help of the Spirit. 
think with me about what some of these wrong desires might be. And let's just think about some of them. I know we've talked about this before, but think of it as it relates to conflict in your life and the heart of it. What makes people, I think about this on the road sometimes. Pre- preachers are kind of strange. What makes people honk their horns when they're in their cars? Well, they want to get somewhere fast. They want those two extra seconds, you know, that they'll cut you off and cut in line. Okay, um, but why? Um, did they really have to get somewhere that fast? Um, maybe they're angry because they were held up by road construction or an Amish buggy somewhere. Um, or what leads to that impatient remark to a loved one or that punishing silent silence? James here mentions you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he mentions coveting, and he mentions this word desire that has to do with pleasure. So there are different aspects of this, and I don't think he means to be exhaustive in what he says here. Maybe it's some desire centered on pleasing yourself. You want peace. You want order in your life. You want efficiency. I'm listing some that are the top on my list, you might guess. Maybe it's the longing and desire for people to like you and approve of you. It's tied into the fear of man theme of Scripture. Maybe it's desire for the material things of this world or the pleasures of this world in some way. Maybe you just want to be in control, and that's not wrong to want that, but you can't let your life be ruled by that. You have to submit that to the Lord because none of us are ultimately in control of our lives That's a desire that can easily become sinful and distorted. Instead of trusting the Lord, you're being ruled by the desire to somehow grasp the reins of your circumstances and of your life. And this list could go on and on. I've given you a smattering of the kinds of desires, but James' point is that when you see the bad fruit of contention that is sinful, when you see the fruit of words that tear down others and don't build up others, then you can be assured that somewhere your desires have gone wrong. That's the root. Verse 16, excuse me, yeah, verse 16 of the end of chapter 3, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, disorder and every vile practice. Powerful words Two representative wrong desires, jealousy and selfish ambition. Again, we need to examine our hearts for these kinds of things. The ultimate reason for the fighting and quarreling in our lives is not the other person, even if he or she is wrong. It is not your circumstances, even if they are difficult. It is not your physical condition, even if you are sick. It is none of these. The ultimate reason is that at the moment, you are being ruled by some desire other than being ruled by Jesus Christ, your Lord, and trusting and submitting and loving him. So we see that James says that it is the war within that leads to the war without. And to see your sin and need for what, uh, for what it is, To have your wrong desire exposed for what they really are, you must bring your heart under the penetrating x-rays of God's word, and then you will begin to see your sin as God sees it and be able to deal with it. And this leads to our second main point, the cure 
which is humbly submitting to God. The cure to sinful conflict, humbly submitting to God. To really solve the heart of conflict is to enter into the presence of God, to come near to God, as James will describe it. Now, you could go to the bookstore, you could go to Barnes and Nobles and look up the bookshelf on conflict and find lots of secular sources for handling conflict. And the advice that you would read in those books would be what I would call horizontal solutions, how to relate better to others. You could read about learning the skill of better listening or how to phrase your concerns and your criticisms in a non condemning way. Or maybe you might read to count to 10 before you voice your anger and irritation. Or watch your body language for how you communicate to others. And those are all good pieces of advice as far as they go. There's nothing wrong with it. The thing that's wrong with that advice, if that's all the advice, because those pieces of advice are horizontal. They're not vertical. They don't go to our relationship with God, to the state of our hearts before God. And we need a deeper cure. You can employ all those wonderful techniques and they won't resolve destructive conflict in your life. The heart needs a vertical solution. It needs a God-oriented solution. And so we need to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God. We see that in verses 4 through 10. In in verse 4, we see an abrupt change of direction. It's almost shocking as you're reading along because you come to verse 4 and you see this statement, you adulterous people. And James goes into a call to repent and turn to God. So before I go into the various aspects and elements of what James says here, step back and just understand that James is saying, The solution to your heart problems are things that you cannot solve yourself. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the Lord to change your heart from within as you turn to him in the midst of your sin and recognize your need and humble yourself before him, call upon him and submit yourself to him. That's the basic point here, that the Lord changes our hearts from within And more and more as we grow in Christ, we bear the good fruit that comes out in handling our conflict, handling our disagreements with others in a way that more deeply honors God. So what are the elements of this humbling of ourselves? The first one we find in verse 4, James warns them of flirting with the world. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Literally, you adulterous people is literally you adulteresses. It's the feminine form. Because James is a book that's very closely connected to Old Testament script. Scripture and James is using that prophetic theme found in the Old Testament in Isaiah 54, Isaiah 57, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 23, and especially in the book of Hosea, where 
The prophets frequently compare the relationship between Yahweh and his people to a marriage relationship. And Yahweh is always portrayed as the husband, and Israel is always portrayed as the unfaithful wife and is called by the prophets back to faithfulness and trust in the Lord and obedience to the Lord. And so James is using that Old Testament imagery, and and it's kind of shocking when he does it here because throughout the book, James constantly is calling the believers he's writing to, usually, usually using the words brothers or beloved brothers. And here he says, you adulteresses. He's shocking them by what he says. And he's saying that by in some way seeking friendship with the world, they are in effect committing spiritual adultery. Now, there's no evidence from this book that these Christians were overtly declaring defiance against God. He's exhorted them for a number of things throughout the book, a lot having to do with their speech, their words, their jealousy, their coveting, these kinds of things. But I believe that he's speaking to them just like he would speak to us. He's condemning them and rebuking them because of their tendency to imitate the world in these various areas by the use of their tongues, chapter 3, by their envy and their selfish ambition. We just saw that at the end of chapter 3. And now in chapter 4, by their pursuing sinful desires. They are, whether they understand it or not, they're showing allegiance to the sinful world. And so James warns them, don't be worldly. Second aspect of this humbling of ourselves, he reminds them of God's jealousy for his people. Verse 5, he reminds them that God is jealous of our affection, of our allegiance. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now, if you know anything about this verse, you know it is uh, one of the most difficult verses to translate in the New Testament. It is a very difficult verse. I do not I'm not going to give you in three minutes a complete overview of all the... It's funny because there's no textual variance about this verse. It's just a difficult verse to translate because there are so many different ways it could be read. The two main interpretations are, the first one, referring to the human tendency to be envious. The NIV translates it under this heading. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. In other words, the, talking about the human spirit that he's made to dwell in us by creating us, envies intensely. Well, the second use is the one that I think is correct, referring to God's jealousy for his people. And the ESV translates it that way, which we read. Do you not, uh, excuse me, he yearns, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. And again, spirit could be translated capital S, spirit, the Holy Spirit, or small s, meaning God's creative spirit that he gave to mankind at creation as he breathed into Adam the breath of life. But in whatever the translation 
is, we're not going to argue over right now, but if you take it, which, I, which most commentaries take it to be God's jealousy for us, you can see that God is jealous of our allegiance, of our trust in him, of our faithfulness to him. And so it's possible by our sin to grieve the Holy Spirit, to sin against our God. There is that aspect of biblical truth that God is a jealous God. It is a good thing that he's jealous, that he, he wants our complete affection. And so we've seen that there's a danger of flirting with the world. We've seen that God is jealous for our allegiance, that we submit and humble ourselves before him and walk with him. And then the third aspect in verse 6 is that he reminds them of God's grace. Verse 6, but he, God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. So, the readers are reminded that our God is a God of grace, who gives grace. God is merciful to us in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of our sin, we must remember that he willingly supplies us all that we need to meet the demands of complete allegiance and wholehearted commitment to him. And we need to keep coming back to that again and again and receiving grace from God through Jesus Christ as we walk with him. And note that receiving God's grace demands humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those who willingly admit their need and accept his grace. And then after he quotes Proverbs 3, if you look at verses 7 to 10, it's interesting. Two phrases are bookends in the beginning of verse 7 and at the end of verse 10. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And then he's going to describe that more. And then he comes to the end of verse 10. Humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will exalt you. Those two passages, submit yourself Therefore, to God and humble yourself to God are very similar ideas. They really connote almost the exact same thing. There are slight nuances between them. But overall, in verses 7 through 10, then, we have a call to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord. Very similar, if you look at 1 Peter 5, 5 through 9, very similar calling there. And there's a mention there about resisting the devil that we're going to see here as well. And so this idea fundamentally is to place ourselves under God's lordship, to commit ourselves to obey him in all things. So when we see a wrong root in our heart and bad fruit in our lives, to humble ourselves before God and to submit to him means that we look at our lives and say, Lord, What is it that is wrong in my heart? What desires are not submitted to you? Obviously, this incident or this encounter or this conflict has exposed those. I want this too much. I want personal peace too much. I want control of my life too much. I want people to approve of me too much. I want this pleasure too much. I want my yard to be perfect and not have any weeds. You know, go on and on. What, what's the desire? It might be a good desire, but as our heart desires are exposed by conflict and the bad fruit that results, we must humble ourselves and submit ourselves 
to our God and to come near to him in repentance. And God promises to come near to us. Notice what verse 7 says. Submit yourselves therefore to God. And there are these pairs. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is bringing out the great breadth that there is in this turning to God. It involves posing Satan's rule, refusing to bow to the devil's authority. We must resist him. We must oppose him by turning to God. We must come near to God in repentance, and he will come near to us. That indicates our fellowship with God is restored as we confess our sin, our active fellowship with God. We're never, we never lose our salvation. Someone born of the Spirit never loses their salvation, but they can lose their active fellowship with God from day to day. And so as we come near to God, he returns to us. We have that sense of his presence with us again. And then there's this couplet at the end of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's literally very brief. It's literally translated, wash hands, sinners, and purify hearts, double-minded. Again, he's using really strong terms, isn't he? To call them double-minded or double-souled, literally. He's being very blunt. And clearly, he sees these readers as believers who need a wake-up call, and he's, he's being uh, somewhat tough on them. He's calling them to repentance, and that whole idea of being double-minded probably brings back the idea of friendship with the world. We are called to single-minded allegiance to our Lord. And this end of verse 8 is also very helpful because it shows us two areas to think about as we confess our sins to the Lord. Notice There's the one phrase, cleanse your hands, you sinners. To cleanse our hands, hands are something that we use to do things with. So that's talking about confessing and repenting of actions of sin or words that we speak in that sense, the outward fruit of our sin. But the second phrase, purify your hearts, you double-minded, then that goes to the heart. We're double-minded. We love God, but we love other things too, sometimes in the place of God. So that's a calling to confess our sinful attitudes and desires. If all you ever confess and repent of is outward sins that you do, then maybe you're missing confessing where your heart is going wrong and how you need to confess internal attitudes in order to come near to God. And then there's this climactic phrase In verse 9, which again borrows Old Testament language and thinking, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Another way to describe humbling ourselves to God and submitting to him and repenting. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul would call it a godly sorrow that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. It's another way the Bible describes true repentance, to mourn over our sin with an attitude of genuine sorrow, or as the catechism says, to hate and forsake our sin because it's displeasing to God. 
This verse doesn't mean that Christians are not allowed to laugh. It doesn't mean that we are supposed to go around with a door and sad expression on our face. But James is talking about the Christian being serious about fighting sin and fighting and repenting of the root causes of our sin. A Christian is not to have a casual attitude towards sin. It's interesting in the book of Proverbs, a fool is a person who scorns the idea of right living before God. A fool is someone who blithely goes along in a life of indolence and laziness and pleasure. And Proverbs 10.23 says, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. That's the kind of joy that we are not supposed to have. A fool has a carefree attitude towards sin. That's wrong. He's a friend of the world. He lives with the hedonistic attitude, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, that Paul talks about later on. This is a worldview that ignores the living God, ignores the awesome reality of God's final judgment And it ignores and thinks nothing about loving God and trusting God and living before God with a view of bringing him glory and praise. So James is calling his readers to true heartfelt repentance. He's talking about the kind of mourning over sin that turns to God from our sin and ultimately experiences the joy that comes from restored fellowship with God when we have squarely faced the reality of our sin and have truly brought our sin to the Lord in humble repentance. And so we've seen just an overview of the cure of this root issue of conflict, that our hearts have sinful desires that go wrong. And so I would ask you this week, if conflict comes up in your life, and it probably will in some way, Are you handling it in a way that honors God? And is that conflict a springboard for you to search your heart and to seek the Lord and to trust in him? And the promise of Scripture here is humble yourself before the the Lord God and he will exalt you. In other words, he will lift you up. Jesus Christ promises his present power to help us to change us from the inside out and to transform our desires to be desires that please and honor him until one day there is no more warfare against remaining sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your true diagnosis of our condition. We thank you for these words that build us up in the Lord. We pray that you would help us to walk lives that are humbly submitted to you, trusting in your will for our lives, whatever comes in our lives this week. Lord, be with us and give us your grace as we come near to you through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.